Um, let's ask for God's help in understanding his word this morning. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful just to be together, Lord, whether it be in our homes, uh, gathered up around the fireplace or here in this place. Uh, God, we thank you that you have brought us together safely. We praise you for the, the small things in life, uh, Lord, a, a furnace that kicks on all night long while we sleep, uh, hot water in the midst of a, a cool night. And God, we thank you for this place, the freedom that we have to worship you this day. Lord, we ask that as we open your word this morning, you would speak to us. And God, we confess we don't listen enough. We confess that many times we, we are distracted. We, uh, we stumble, we fall, and yet um, you in your extravagant mercy have given us the ability to worship you. You've given us the ability to hear from you, to, to learn from your word. And so God, would you just take all of that, and set it aside so we can spend this moment with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So chapter one of Acts, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. All of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kaldamah. That is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered among the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. So last week as we first opened up to the book of Acts, we were reminded of God's mission for his people. The risen Lord called on his earliest of followers, his most intimate of friends, to be his witness. That's how the book of Acts begins. You'll be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
And you'll remember, I asked us two questions. First, what is it in your life that matters? And second, what is it then that distracts you from that mission? We were left with this reminder of the importance of being a gospel people. And then we were left with this cliffhanger of Jesus ascending to the Father as the apostles gazed towards the heavens. But this morning, we now find the apostles, they're back in the city of Jerusalem, right where Jesus had told them to go. It's been about a day's journey. They are in the upper room, the the place where scholars believe Jesus likely broke bread with his disciples. And everyone is now anticipating the Holy Spirit's coming, just as was promised. But there's yet another unspoken question in the room. Remember last week, it was all about Jesus and the timing of his kingdom. Lord, is this the time when you will restore all things? But this week, it's almost as if they're holding on to a new elephant. There's smiles on their faces, but there is a a heaviness that's gone unanswered. And I say that because as you read through the list, someone's gone missing. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. But the 12th man has gone AWOL. You know the story all too well. Judas is gone. In fact, the account of his demise really is is so graphic. The first time you read it or hear it, you really can't forget it. Judas Iscariot isn't just absent. The betrayer of Christ is dead. I mean, just feel the weight of this with me, right? There's this excitement of a new beginning. There's a, a commissioning, the Holy Spirit soon to come upon you. Go into all the world. And yet in the background, there is this looming grief of a friend who has fallen to the ways of this world. And the only one who seemed to have known it was coming was Christ. You might remember Jesus had very specifically named 12 disciples as this continuation of God's promise over the 12 tribes of Israel. It was this number of completion and wholeness, 12. The number of apostles, it symbolically connected the Old and the New Testaments together in in such a way that it doesn't make sense to now have 11. And yet as Jesus ascends, this, this 12th man by his own actions, he's gone. And someone has to address the big ears and the gray trunk sitting in the room. So Peter stands up in front of the gathering. He names this unspoken reality. Our brother was among us. He was ministering with us. We we thought he was one of us. He's not. You know, this Judas, he betrayed Jesus in such an evil manner that I would say even he himself couldn't fully grasp the treason of his heart. Sold him for 30 coins. And after the damage was done, like Judas was so overcome, you'll remember, he threw his dirty money back into the temple in this absolute despair. The Gospel of Matthew tells us then he took his life. And we should be careful here, right? This is not a change of heart. It's one thing to feel ashamed for betraying a friend or, or fearful for your actions and the consequence therein. That much is true. But as far as we can tell, Judas never turned to Christ. I mean, the risen Lord, he he proves to us in his resurrection, his love covers a multitude of sin, but Judas, by his own choice, is his betrayer. It's almost as if the apostleship is now marred. There's a a missing limb to the group. There's an incompleteness of what was. Eleven is not twelve. Someone has to address this elephant. I want to be clear for a minute. I think it's important that we understand it wasn't suicide that 
proved Judas' unrepentant heart. We hear about that a lot, I think, when it comes to that, that taboo issue. You know, today we know mental illness is a real thing. We should be careful with those kind of quick judgments. But, but we know this much. It was his unrepentant heart that led to consequences that not even Judas saw coming. Jesus named him his adversary. Which I think poses this question, right? Which is, what do we do with a betrayal like that? One of my favorite bands growing up was DC Talk. Anyone know that band? Yes. Boom. That's good. When I asked at Legacy, I was like, oh man, generational disconnect. <laughs> I know they emerged right at the beginning of the, the boom of Christian music, right? Where we went from like Sandy Patty, want, want, to like, oh, this is getting good. <laughs> my aunt and uncle had given us a cassette tape and as a teenager, they're... Their lyrics spoke to me in a way that none others did, right? It was, it was about as good as Christian music can get. It was real and authentic, but it was also talking about Jesus and preaching Christ. Last year, I learned how one of the members, one of my heroes, walked away from the faith entirely. On Twitter, he encouraged others to deconstruct their faith with him. It's a movement, he said. What do we do with that? Another prominent influence in my life was written by a pastor named Joshua Harris. Joshua wrote a book called Kissing, Dating, Goodbye. I Kiss, Dating, Goodbye. And the book was quite this radical approach that suggested we should court men and women and, and, and instead of dating, right? And I didn't agree with all of it, but I have to say, at 19 years old, he kept me out of a lot of hot water. I remember in my small group debating among my friends what this looked like how it made me be more intentional with my relationship with Jen. Joshua made me think about my faith. So you can imagine my disappointment years, years later when he too had left the church entirely and led others with him. You know, I could keep going. We could name names all morning, but that's not the point. The point is, what do we do with that? that elephant in the room, when, when someone who we looked up to, someone who we believed emulated the lifestyle of Christ, they fail us, they, they fail him. You know, I think it creates this sort of awkward pause that, that hangs out mid-sentence. And one of two things often happen in the church in these places, it seems to me. We, we either quickly move on, sort of sweep it under the rug, leaving the, the shame and guilt behind us, or for some of us, there is a real damage to our faith, isn't there? For some still, there's a temptation to maybe move out with them. Maybe they see something I don't. But I want you to notice something this morning. I want you to see how Peter addresses the issue because therein we find a much better answer to this problem. And this is really more complicated than we might think, right? Because for starters, we should ask, why was it Peter who stood up to address the elephant? I mean, you remember Peter, right? What do we know about Peter's leadership? He had his own epic fail. Somehow of the 11 left standing, it's Peter. It's the only other disciple in the room who fell flat on his face with Christ. And yet he's the spokesperson for the group again. How is he any different? You remember Jesus at the Last Supper had told his followers, followers there would be two failures of nerve. One would betray him, the other one would deny him. Before the rooster crowed, he said, one of you will deny even knowing my name. And what was Peter's response? Far be it from me, Lord, not I. So we should ask, what was it about Judas that leads to his demise and shame and ultimate destruction while Peter is preaching to the brothers, expositing the scriptures in order to move God's people ahead? I mean, if that is an irony. Here's my take. 
And his, I think this is at least part of the answer for how we, we deal with these kinds of situations. It seems to me it was only by God's grace one of the two was reinstated. That's it. The only cause for one's return and the other's removal was that one of the two by the Holy Spirit repented in faith. Remember, it's not like Judas had slipped into a moment of weakness, right? This was a deliberate plan. Jesus said it would have been better for you, Judas, to have not been born. The scriptures tell us Satan had his way with this man. And even though Judas certainly felt the sting of his own betrayal of a friend, he never puts his faith in Christ. Never once do we see evidence of a transformed heart. In fact, look at this in John 6, 64. Jesus said, there's some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who didn't believe and who it was who would betray him. Meanwhile, Peter, we see evidence of this man's faith all over the place. You remember, he was the one that wanted to wash Jesus. He, he was the one at Caesarea Philippi who confessed the Christ. Look at this in Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, we're told he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist Others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it was along the shoreline, long after Peter had denied Christ to this servant girl, that the risen Lord comes to Peter in his fall and he asks him three times, one for each denial. Peter, do you love me? Peter, of course, responded the affirmative, yes, I love you, and was restored to ministry by God's grace. You see the difference? One lives a lifestyle of betrayal. The other, like the prodigal son, returns. This is why we call it amazing grace. He's covered, sinned. So this Peter, now restored to ministry, not by his own works, but by God's mercy, it's he who stands up to address the elephant. I don't know why I'm stuck on that picture. You know, I looked up this week where, where that expression came from. In 1814, an author named I Ivan Kirlov wrote a story about the inquisitive man. And in this story, he talks about a guy who goes to a museum and he's so inquisitive about all the tiny details that somehow he fails to see the elephant exhibit right in front of him. And from that point forward, the analogy took off. In 1882, Mark Twain took the same idea, wrote a story called The Stolen White Elephant. It was all about these detectives who, despite their efforts, could not find the, the missing elephant right in front of them. See, there's this massive question that needs to be addressed, and it's really two parts. One, how will God restore the broken link in the chain? But two, how are then God's people to respond when they see others' betrayal? And the answer, I think, is really counterintuitive. Peter stands up and he reminds us gathering that this betrayal that they've all seen is not something that should destroy their faith. Rather, it's something that confirms it. It strengthens it. I mean, you talk about a contrarian viewpoint. No, no, no. Peter says, you see those around you betray or deny Christ. It shouldn't cause you to stumble in your faith. It should strengthen you. And this makes no sense, right? Because most of the time when a leader in our midst leaves the faith or betrays Christ, fails us, it often produces the opposite effect. But let me show you what I mean. Here's why I say that. Peter pulls out the scriptures and he's going to use these Psalms from King David and expound upon them to make the point that this was the plan all along. 
He wants the fellowship of believers to understand this was a surprise to us, yes, but did you notice by God's very word, this was no surprise to him at all. Jesus said it would happen. Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 69, may his camp be desolate, there be no one to dwell in it. Psalm 109, let another take his office. Again, remember, it was Christ who told his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And then he dips the bread into the dish and hands it to Judas. And here's my point. When we come across a Judas or even a Peter in this life, we should know this was foretold by the Lord. It doesn't detract at all what we, from what we believe. It confirms God's providence. I love Edward Donnelly's take on this. Uh, he was a professor of New Testament, the banner of truth. Look at this in Acts 20. Look at how Jesus called this still for us today. Look at this. Pay careful attention, he says in verse 28, to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away. See, what's a believer to do when he encounters a a Judas? First, let it confirm your faith in a God who called it. But then second, look again with me at verse 24. Look what the apostles do. And then they prayed. They returned to their God who sees all, who knows all, who is entirely in control of all things. And they now look to him for the restoration of what was lost. See, because the same one who said that Judas would betray him also told the disciples, I'll be with you to the very end. In fact, it's not just that. He told them by the Holy Spirit, he's going to sweep them into the power of the mission by which they've been sent. In fact, I found out earlier this week, and I I confirmed in my own study, nearly every hinge point, nearly every major episode and turning moment in the book of Acts, you will find this same pattern. It is bathed in prayer. Every time the apostles found themselves at a significant place, they go back to the one who is faithful. See, and now by prayer and by seeking God's will and his plan, this tragedy is going to soon be transformed into the first redemptive act in the the book of Acts. Peter says, here's the qualifications for apostleship. First, this new apostle needs to be a witness of Christ, he says, from John's baptism to the end. That's the definition of an apostle, the eyewitness of Christ. Side note, If someone comes to you and claims that they have the office of apostle, then run far, far away. Peter says they also, second, needed to accompany Jesus the entire time. And now from the crowd, two names arise. Barsabbas, meaning son of Sabbath, also known as justice, and Matthias, meaning gift of Yahweh. And after praying to the Lord to reveal his will, the one who knows the heart of all men, he cast the lot on Matthias to carry the torch forward. Just a quick side note about lots for a minute. When I say the word casting lots, what, what picture comes to mind for you? At Legacy, I overwhelmingly heard dice, right? Maybe we think of uh, drawing sticks or flipping a coin, pulling names from a hat. Scholars don't know exactly what this looked like, but Nearly 70 times in the Old Testament, just seven times in the New Testament, you'll find this practice in the scriptures. God's people bring their coin, their sticks, their stones to cast lots to decide. And 
I think it's important we know, like, particularly with this week coming up, this isn't like a caucus. It's not a vote. This is, this is a, a casting objects to determine God's will, which I think often brings out the question for us today, like, should we still do that? Should we flip a coin? Should I buy the car or not? Should I go to this college or that one? Should I retire this year or next year? Should we pull the plug or not? I threw that last one in just to make sure you're still with me. I think a few things have come to mind. First, both of these men were equally qualified, right? This is not some random practice of draw the names from the hat. Apparently, there were two in this crowd who could have easily been apostles by definition. Either one would have worked. But second, unlike Peter in this early gathering, I think it's important to remember the church today has the entire canon of God's word. The church today has the Holy Spirit moving among them. And so I would conclude we should focus far more on discernment with scripture and community and probably leave the rolling of the dice behind. Although that said, later today, I think my family and I are going to draw sticks to see who takes the trash out. But what does this story teach us about our faith? January 2nd, 1922, one of my famous, famous stories in all of football. Texas A&M was facing one of the best teams in the country, the Dixie Classic in Dallas. And Center College was known as this, this school for showing no mercy on the field. And this particular game was no different. With every play, more and more men limped off the field from A&M until there was finally no longer any players to get the job done. They needed 12, they only had 11 but just as the coach was in a panic, he looked into the stadium and he saw one of his former players who had defected to the basketball team early in the year, E. King Gill. And he knew as such he was an eligible player. So he waved him down to the sidelines, put a uniform on him and threw him in. And it was there that the Aggies pulled off one of the greatest upsets in all of college sports history. My time of Texas, um, that story would have really stirred the pot. I can say a story like that up here. D down there, I would have heard after church, are you comparing the 12th man of A&M to one of the apostles? But it's interesting how, how quickly we forget the significant number of 12, right? Not because football or because Matthias, there's something special about him. No, because as one scholar put it, the desire to make up the number of 12 was related to the fact that Jesus wanted to restore all of Israel. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. These men, they would, they would represent not the remnant of Israel, but the restoration, the fullness. See, and what this story teaches us then, I think is, is quite profound. And that is that no matter the pitfalls around you, God's plan prevails. In Christ, he triumphs, his grace restores. That means you might feel let down by someone. Or you might be the one who lets someone down. You might be betrayed or, or wonder, how am I to keep the faith when the one I was following left me? You might bear the wounds of a church who left their convictions. You might bear the wounds of an entire denomination who walked away from what was true. But keep this in mind. To God, the plan was never thwarted. He who began a good work in you sees it through to completion. See, and so the next time that we see error or betrayal or denial, we should remember Jesus told us this would happen. This confirms God's sovereignty, that he would rise again. He even told Peter, he said before his denial in Luke 22, you're going to deny me, and then you'll turn, and in so doing, you will strengthen the brothers. This same Christ has told us he's coming again. So here's my takeaway, right? We've all fallen short. The question is, 
how do we become more like Peter and asking, where do I need to turn from my sin? I I love you, Lord. So that we can differentiate our steps from Judas, who never did. So God restores to the fold the 12th apostle. It's a significant number, but we hear nothing of Matthias again. See, but where Judas failed, what Matthias shows us is God's plan for redemption still prevails. So this week, here's our encouragement. Even when you don't know what God is doing, even when you can't see what God is doing, when you find yourself with the elephant in the room, what do we do? We return to his word, we return to prayer, and we seek God in community for what's next. Let's go to him in prayer and do that now. Will you pray with me? God, we do thank you for your extravagant grace among us, God. We thank you that you can take a broken situation and you can restore it for the purposes of your glory. And so, God, we pray first for ourselves, Lord, that we would not become a broken link in the chain. God, that you would search us and that you would know our hearts. Lord, and we confess to you if there is any way in us that is not of you, God, would you redeem it? Would you turn us from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh that seek after your will and not ours? God, we thank you that you have promised us by your very word that your plan prevails. And God, we ask you that you would keep us steadfast in faith to follow you. That you would keep us steadfast with your word open in prayer to follow after you. God, guard us, protect us, lead us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.